This podcast is supported by our friends at Birkenstock Australia. Birkenstock products are predominantly manufactured in Germany with a focus on quality, comfort and classic styles. Birkenstock's footbeds are made from sustainable materials, including cork, jute and natural latex. Given their durability, Birkenstock products are sustainable by nature. Birkenstock, tradition since 1774. Nathan with you on the Dumbo Feather podcast. How are you doing out there? My thoughts are with all of those who are toughing it out in lockdown right now. Go easy on yourself if you come apart. I have numerous times over the past two years living in Melbourne. So know you are not alone in the mess. Please reach out if you want to chat. Nathan at DumboFeather.com We have a gorgeous conversation to lift your spirits right now. It's with Jade Miles, who runs Black Barn Farm with her family of five in northeast Victoria. Black Barn is a regenerative, intentional orchard and nursery that operates on permaculture principles. They run farm tours and workshops and promote homesteading within the rhythms of the seasons. Jade recently released a beautiful book called Future Steading, Live Like Tomorrow Matters, which, as well as telling her family's story, is full of practical skills, recipes and rituals for connecting with your environment and community and embracing a simpler, more generative way of being. Jade also has a podcast called Future Steading, which she recently interviewed Barry, our publisher, on. In this chat, the tables are turned as Barry draws out Jade's story and passion for building localised food systems. I was lucky enough to be on your really amazing podcast and you asked me really wonderful questions. And I've since re-listened to our conversation and that conversation about language being our first technology and you've released this book that is so beautiful and inspiring and is landing in a real cultural moment as well. And I'm really interested to know about how that's moving in you. Let's stay on language for a minute. What was the language that you have avoided in crafting this book and telling your family story and your personal story? Look, we know that people don't respond to endless gloom. It doesn't evoke a desire to engage and to become active and to enact change. And so we know that we're better off using language that builds solidarity and builds your people and that shares stories of inspiration with a bit of grit. Because I think as soon as you become so evocative that people can't associate with it or can't access it, it just feels out of their reach and it feels too hard. Instagram can be that. I've got people really close to me that say, is your life really like that? And I say, you know, it's not really like that. Come spend a day with me. I'm filthy all the time and I'm mostly pretty tired all the time because it's physically exhausting. I really worked hard to find a language that was gentle and nourishing and inspirational, but that was blatantly blunt and real and true and honest, but tried to kind of weave it together through maybe slightly more flouncy poetic language than I maybe speak, but think it was resonating with people. And so that's the language approach that I took. It's so fascinating listening to you. I almost had the rush of history coming through. There's this incredible seesaw, this juggling act of being able to call forward 
I wrote it here, the intentionality of how you speak about Mm. creating community and home. I feel Mm. like your book, which is called Future Steading, Live Like Tomorrow Matters, which is the zeitgeist. We all want to know how to do that. Mm. And there are so many things that get in the way of us doing that because there's a longing and a calling Mm. forward of something. I could tell in your book that you have a lot of deep body memory and biological story connected to community, family, closeness, love, place, Mm. how to make those places real and full of consciousness, intentionality and love. That's what I felt so strongly can be done in an urban environment, in an apartment and on your incredibly beautiful farm. Yeah, and that was really intentional. That was because I had spent a lot of years hearing from people saying, I just wish I could do what you do, but I don't have the space. I love the idea of homesteading, but I will never have acreage. It wasn't about having space or acreage. It's about what's going on between your ears to understand how you can actually gently shift the lens that you function in life with to make sure that all of these philosophical or ideological paradigms can actually still play out even if you're living in an apartment in the city and even if you're renting and even if you are on your own trying to start somewhere you can. In all of the interviews that we've done over the last year or so on the Future Setting Pod the one thing that comes through from everyone is that action is the enabler and navel gazing with fear doesn't get anyone anywhere and being filled to the brim with ideology that doesn't then progress to the next stage doesn't get anywhere. It's the action and it's the tiny action. It's saving seeds or swapping a casserole or sharing an abundance or joining a local food co-op and actively participating. It's growing mint on your kitchen bench for your morning ritual of hot water and honey. It's all of those little tiny things that don't require a homestead and don't require open space. And I think you can do all of that through conscious, considered existence. Oh, again, while you were talking, I could kind of see a flood of images because I've been really glued to the news and I've been in Melbourne. I'm in an urban environment. We've just come out of lockdown, fifth lockdown, and creating community online and otherwise is gnarly in this moment. It is, and it's so much harder, and we're all navigating this with no confidence in stability. None of us in Victoria are feeling stable at all because we feel like at any minute our life might turn upside down again. And, yeah, we're going to go back to something that we were doing only a few weeks ago, but actually how long will it last and can I actually tolerate it this time? And I know all the bits that don't work, and so that makes me feel overwhelmed and anxious. It's really hard to create community when we're stuck in this sort of world of unknown. Like you and I said, it's hard to get out of bed. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. I mean, I put my feet on the ground pretty early most days and and walk through the bush because it is a recalibration that I really rely on. And if it doesn't happen, I'm pretty scratchy for the whole day. But um, that morning walk in the bush with or without a friend doesn't really matter, but it's that humbling insignificance that comes from being in the natural world that makes me just feel like I'm a tiny speck of all in part of all of it. It's also just that presence with the actual living world, not our own weirdness and the uncertainty of so much. You reclaim groundedness when you actually just walk in the woods, walk on the ground, smell the Yeah, and breathe and observe. I was really lucky to have that shoved down my throat from a really early age, having a dad who's an artist, and he 
observed until the point of distraction <laughs> and the point of frustration for everyone around him. But I think observation is a really, really key part in everything that we do because it is humbling, but it does make you really see the simple things in a way that you celebrate them because you watch tiny changes every day and it might be the seasons moving through, it might be the changes of the landscape that you're in, it might be the difference in the air that you are breathing and the light that is shining on things at different times of day or different times of the year. And it's those gentle observations that give you a chance to really breathe and to really notice and to not be so dominated by the white noise that, to be honest, are owned by a very small few multinationals who are yelling at us all the time. We don't actually have to take that on. We can actually step away from that and genuinely find time to observe. It's funny because in future studying, it's almost painful, the beauty of the book. And <laughs> Is it a well, good thing? <laughs> it's a really good thing. But what I'm hearing that I really am resonating with deeply at the moment and I'm kind of moved to tears by and I don't have an answer. This is just an exploration with you. And Sarah Wilson talks about it as well, is what you learnt from your father as an artist, what we all learn from artists and what we learn from, you talk about it, I call it Ancient Futures, which is Helena Norberg Hodge's amazing book about living in a tribal community in the 70s. And you talk about it here, borrowing from the past to inform how we live now and going forward, especially in these uncertain times, is at its core falling back in love with the world. Yeah. And it's painful. Yeah. It's so sweet and it's so tender and it almost feels impossible and essential at the same time. It requires slowing down and unplugging and all the things that my anxious self in the city doesn't want to do. This fifth lockdown, I was like, I don't even want to go for a walk. Yeah, and actually it's confronting because, as you say, it's beautiful, but you've got to look past a lot of the highly curated way of existence that we have decided is normal and is appropriate. And so that's why it's hard because it really calls you out on what enough is and it calls you out on what real is and it calls you out on what your role in it is. And so it evacuates all the bullshit because it has to. And it gives you an opportunity to truly see. And seeing is confronting because it's not hidden by any of the plaster that's been fakely put over something to make it neat and tidy. It's actually pulling it back to its realest, rawest form. I wrote this note here. I didn't have a question at the end of it, but you just reminded me of it. So I saw it. I get so much beauty, strength, courage, inspiration and flat out awe reading, listening to and witnessing the epic lives of country women. Mm. That's what I wrote to myself when I was reading your book. So much humility, groundedness, resilience, poetry and power in lives lived close to the earth, family and nature. It is a radical act to be happy with what you have. Yeah, it is because we're surrounded by this push for growth and this push for more and this push for biggering. And so to say, no, no, I've got enough, is radical. You're right. And you really are pushing against the mainstream narrative of endless growth. And surrounding yourself with others who know what their enough looks like makes the journey much easier. Mm. But you still got to have a bit of grit about you because there's a whole lot of endless messaging that tells you that, of course, you don't have enough. So finding that and being genuinely happy with it. And, you know, I'm not a bloody saint. 
I have this sense of ideology and what my enough is, but of course we have ongoing debates in our household about what enough is for all of the individuals, what enough is for all of us as a family. And we oscillate, you know, I'll be pushing to minimise things and my husband will say, no, no, we actually do need this bit. And then he'll be pushing to bring things right back in and I'm pushing for more. And so we live in this world too. So we're surrounded by those never-ending desires for more. And we're starting a business too. So we kind of have this sense that (laughs) at some point we will say, once we've got the barn, we've got enough. And once we've got our trees in the ground, we've got enough but we still don't have enough right this second. But actually, you know, if we stopped for a second, we'd realise we do. We have a healthy relationship. We have healthy kids. We have a beautiful community. We have an incredible set of rituals that pull us through our day and our year. We have an ability to grow our own food and we have the skills to do it and so do our kids. So actually, is that enough? Never ending. You're always questioning. So amazing, isn't it? I, I think it is the disease of our time. The yeah. generation we were born into. Yeah, wanting more and a bullshit facade, the diseases that we're faced with. <laughs> and when I look at your Instagram, yes, I can see how Instagram and that scroll, that way of entering yeah. a kind of fantasy realm, it's like Netflix, we're scrolling, we're hunting, we're looking. There's aspirational, like looking at a Gauguin or a Cezanne or reading Hemingway, or reading Eudora Welty. And I was talking to a friend, like I was raised reading really broad writers from different cultures and different perspectives. It's profoundly enriching and we need the stories and we need the imaging. Yeah, yeah, we do. How we can live into beauty. It's not necessarily about the styling of your bookshelves. (laughs) We need to accept that layers and rough edges are what we actually need, and they come through stories. Actually, I just recently interviewed um, Damon Gamow, who fights tooth and nail for storytellers to be heard, storytellers of all types, documentary makers, poetry writers, artists, painting artists, people who are creating gardens and landscapes, anyone who can tell a story, they are the people who are creating the wisdom-sharing opportunities and they are the people who can rebuild culture, and we're desperate to rebuild culture. Yeah, but we're having like an unexpected conversation, which is how do we rebuild culture from this place of suffering? Like the suffering is profound. Mm. And at the same time, I read this article this morning that while alcohol sales have gone up for all the supermarket chains Mm. and and weird things in in lockdowns or whatever, simultaneously people are getting sober at a faster rate than ever seen before. Yeah. That's across the board. I feel like people are now choosing to be what they want to be in the moment that they're in it and tomorrow on something else. And there are no longer these defining pigeonholes that we all sit in. I feel like that fluidity of existence is becoming more acceptable. What I was referring to, though, was this ability to sit with ourselves. That was the focus of the article this morning, that people have this opportunity to actually sit with their feelings. Mm. And it's so profound because they're able to let go of so much, even though you would think for many people that's the most terrifying thought in the world is to sit with their actual life, their actual choices and their feelings and then slowly move from what they were to what they want to become. It's a time of opportunity and enormous suffering and collapse. And I feel like when I see the picture in Future Studying, there's this beautiful image of your farm and the shed Nothing fancy, but a lot of handmade fencing and stuff and just light. 
Do you know that fencing would be the one thing that people ask me about more than anything? And that fencing came about out of pure need. I'm impatient and I bought a whole heap of geese home. It was the first thing we did was put the veggie garden in when we landed. And I bought these geese home and my husband said, well, that was clever. Geese and veggie gardens don't really go. And considering we haven't got a fence in place, you'd better sort that out. I had just been diagnosed with Ross River and I was really, really sick. It was off the back of a whole heap of other autoimmune issues that I navigate pretty well consistently now. And so I was really sick and I used to wander to the bottom of the hill into the bush every day and bring back two sticks. And after months of doing this, I had a massive pile of sticks and we had just pulled some fences out to put our orchard in. And so we stored all the old wire and we looked at the pile of sticks and the pile of wire and we thought there's got to be a solution here and we're just going to use what we've got and we're going to find a way to keep these bloody geese out of the veggie garden. And it truly was a matter of just using what you've got and being a bit creative with it. And it's now become a bit of a stamp. We've got them all over the property because they're available and we know how to do it with our own bare hands. You're so awesome. Oh, my gosh. So you just hinted gently that you battle with autoimmune. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was no hint. (laughs) I just scream out loud. I pushed really hard for a really, really long time. And it's really hard to know whether it was a stress thing, whether it was an endless exhaustion thing, whether it was hormonal. It certainly was exacerbated by twins. I had a really, really rough pregnancy with my twins, my first pregnancy. They came uh, a couple of months prem. My body just did not want them in there anymore. And the night I gave birth to the little monkeys, I was 10 kilos lighter than I am right now, fully pregnant. I was so sick during pregnancy that um, I've never quite recovered. I've never quite managed to get my energy levels back and my hormone levels balanced and my fatigue under control and my headaches and my light sensitivity. Yeah, so there's all these symptoms. And, you know, maybe it was because I was living in developing countries for a while and I've got gut bugs. Who knows? Like I'm, I have tried everything under the sun and it's very much now a matter of me saying, well, maybe actually this is a gift. Maybe it gave me the very hard jolt that I needed to take a big deep breath and slow the heck down. You haven't slowed down. You own a family farm and you do the epic physical task of growing food and feeding your community. So I am like, what do you mean? (laughs) I'm listening to that. Maybe, Maybe tell us your story. What's compelling about it, of course, is you're incredibly real and you're doing this unbelievable work. Maybe take us a little bit on the journey from who Jade was and who Jade is now and how you got from there to this farm and this incredible vision that you're materialising every day despite headaches and fatigue. (laughs) Well, I guess the first thing is I didn't do any of it on my own and I don't think you can. I don't think it makes sense for us to try. I've heard you speak pretty strongly about your partner in crime too and I couldn't do any of this without Charlie. He, you know, I had a pretty wild upbringing. I had an artist who was a dad and I had parents who were filled to the brim with ideology for living in a deeply connected to community and to natural world way. We grew all our own food. We traded what we couldn't grow. Dad was an artist. So the storytelling through pretty abstract means has always been something that sits really comfortably with me. Things like colour is how I organise my bookshelf. It's how I organise my wardrobe. It's how I identify people. Colour is a really big part of my world, which is why the book is as vibrant and colourful as it is and why it was really important to have 
someone like Megan Grant bring it to life with her art. And so I did actually feel like for a lot of my childhood, I didn't belong though. My dad was the weird wacko hippie that wore weird clothes and went away painting for months on end. And we sometimes went with him and we sometimes didn't. So we were in and out of schools and we changed schools a lot. So I was that kid that never really felt like I belonged, but I probably just needed to grow up a bit to feel like I belonged. I never wanted to be part of mainstream. And so I was never going to belong in high school. By uni, I had met Charlie and we were really fortunate to both know immediately that we wanted the same thing and that was to be not in the city but to be in the bush, to be growing our own food in some capacity and to be part of a small community. But we moved at 21 out of the city and we moved to this plateau that we live on, Stanley, which is in northeast Victoria, and were surrounded by multi-generational apple and pear and cherry orchards that were getting pushed out and they were all small scale and they were all um, family owned and it was bloody heartbreaking to watch all of this wrenching work just get pushed to the ground and sold to people who were seeking lifestyle rather than genuine agricultural pursuits and I guess it sowed in both of us really early on really deeply a curiosity and a deep fear for understanding why our, our food system was as broken as it was, why short supply chains weren't a thing, why people weren't connected to their food, why the dominance was coming from large-scale multinational corporations, why there was no next generation coming through because it just wasn't financially viable or appealing. There was no celebration around those who grow our food. That started a desire to own land and to do it, but we had to find a way to make that viable. So we just kept asking questions. Eventually, we got to the point where we took ourselves to America for a big block of time to research what local food systems over there looked like because they're ahead of us and the GFC really expedited their need to make local food systems vibrant in some parts especially. So we spent all our time in Vermont and came back and founded our local food co-op and pushed really hard for local food policies and local food action plans and did lots of public speaking and started lots of workshops and education programs with school groups and started to really look at the system as a whole and tried to understand what our role in that looked like and what model we would need to roll out in order to be viable. And so I haven't done this on my own. I don't know that you could. I think you're pushing uphill and you're pushing hard and it's exhausting. And I got exhausted having someone right by my side with exactly the same intention. So I don't know that I could have done it if I didn't have him. Where's the exhaustion in that? Because when you tell that story, just for anyone listening, you know, it sounds like you guys are legends and you just so aligned with one another, values alignment, and, and the love comes from a vision of the world you want to create and leave for your kids and future yeah. generations, which is such a right action, right thought, right impulse. Then you go down that path. It sounds like it was quite an incredible journey. Follow that impulse and follow that love and follow that creativity. So that all sounds great. Where does the exhaustion come mm. from? It comes because you're speaking a language that not everybody understands. So there's a huge amount of education required. It comes because you are collaborating. And so you are endlessly managing the dynamics of human interaction and democratic process. So you're making sure that you are trying to be open and transparent all the time. And I think you and I have talked about this before too. There is an ability to just soldier ahead and not worry about who you stand on and how you get there, but that doesn't work. You actually need to bring your community on this with you. And that is complex and it's draining because you're repeating yourself in different ways so that different people understand the language that you're talking and that people can understand how they can form part of that process. You're not going to bring change genuinely if you're a one-man show. We just can't be. We're part of a really complex web 
of the world and knowing that you are just one tiny part of that I think is really powerful but it means that you need to then work out how you connect to all the other pieces so that's I think where the exhaustion came from I did seven years on our local food co-op board that we founded and stepping off that was really emotional because it had become a big part of my identity but it was really enabling because I could then walk away and see what legacy had been left look at it objectively duck below the radar a bit so I was no longer in that really active leadership role. And forming Future Steading as a concept, creating a weekly podcast and writing a book was actually really cathartic. It was a beautiful opportunity to just recalibrate and realise that identity can evolve and adapt. I think that's really important that people don't always hold on to a singular sense of identity. We are really complex beings, part of a really complex world. Of course, we will evolve and adapt and we need to have the courage to let go of what we have been or what we were hoping for and let the reality be what it is. I think that's where the exhaustion came from, was holding on really tightly to expectation and other people's sense of expectation and finding independence in who I am and what I stood for and being okay with all of those things. I'm resonating so much with the letting go and the holding on. You know, we've talked about leadership and how when you lean into leadership, there is a visioning forward and then holding yourself, your family and your community on that journey, but in some ways being agnostic about the outcomes. That is an art. If you can manage that, then you're amazing. (laughs) No, I can't manage that. saying that that pretty much what it asks of us. I would really love us to get to mitigate a two-degree warming of this planet because we're already living through the diabolical outcomes of the current warming and we could mitigate a two-degree warming, which is becoming less and less likely, but I'm still going to spend my adult life gunning for that, mobilising, fortifying, getting community around that, trying all the things, but I partly have to be agnostic about the outcome because it's not a gimme. There are so many, as you said, pieces of that puzzle. Yeah, yeah. And also I think we are trained to be focused on short-termism. We think that answers should come in three to five years. That's what our political system works on. That's what our average turnover of a CEO of an organisation works on. Short-termism is very normal for us, but in fact these problems are multi-generational in their solution. And Charlie often says to me, if you want to do something incredible, you might have to let a few other things go. You might actually have to focus on just one or two things and be really comfortable that you may never get to the end of the vision that you've created. Well, man, it's like giving me an ice cream and telling me not to eat it. I can't create a vision and then not see it come to fruition, but maybe I'm going to have to accept that actually all I'm doing is creating a foundation for the next generation to take the next step in the vision that I've created. Maybe it's not even possible. We decimated 60,000 years worth of intelligence when we decided that our black-skinned cousins were nothing more than savages. We honestly think we can revert to an indigenized state of existence in two or three generations. Of course we can't. It's really important that we acknowledge that we are a tiny component of a web that is working towards the greater good. And there are so many people doing amazing things. So not only is action really critical, but so too is acknowledging that you are just one of lots of people doing amazing things. So rather than letting overwhelm take over, which is what the exhaustion comes from, I'm sure, and that grip, you hold so tightly to the vision that you've created and as the leader, you're going to push it through. It might be okay to acknowledge that the next generation and the 45 
thousand of them after that are going to actually take you in the right direction and have some faith in human spirit. At this moment we're in, which feels like a collapse of so many known entities, known structures and systems, might just be the shift in consciousness. That's right, and we can't control that. I really want to, just want to say. (laughs) Don't we all? Wouldn't it be good? Really wanted to just stay on that thread around hope versus nihilism. What do you do when the overwhelm hits because you've got this incredible farm, you've got this incredible intention, this beautiful family, a beautiful book and a beautiful podcast? That's a lot. What do you do with overwhelm? That is very real. So I'm a doer. I think some people find solace in peace and quiet. I find solace in action. Digging a hole for me is better therapy than going to therapy. Going for a walk in the bush. I've heard that as a metaphor, digging a hole. And I'm like, no, when Jade says digging a hole, she means. Oh, no, I truly mean getting my hands in the dirt and digging a bloody hole or mulching for an hour. So I find enormous hope in planting seeds. I've always found that. That would be a reflection of just mirroring that as a child. I was surrounded by people planting seeds. And I say this, share this story in my book. When I rang my dad desperately years ago, I had no money and my car had broken down and I had two 18-month-olds and Sally was away with work and I rang dad and said, Dad, I've got no money and I've got our cars broken down and I know you've got a few spare cars. Can I possibly borrow one? He said, oh, Dal, have you got a good pram? Have you got good walking shoes? what the hell is he going on about? Yeah, yeah, I do. He said, stick those little boys in that pram, walk into town and buy yourself some seeds. I said, I don't understand what you're saying. And he said, well, if you've got no money, you better grow some food. If you get some seeds in the ground now, in a few weeks' time, you're going to have food to feed your kids. I said, you're a bastard. I just need to borrow a car for a little while until I've got the money to fix this car. And he said, no, 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 you'll be right. And he hung up. And I was so perturbed and so hurt, but so used to his abstract ways. But I did. I put those little boys in the pram. I pushed them into town. I had been living this ridiculous life where we had a business in Vanuatu and I'd just finished, wrapped up a business in Cambodia and we were working up at the mountain at Mount Hotham and I didn't really belong in my community. And we were living this pre-baby life with 18-month-olds and he had long said to me, I think you're going to have to find a new way. You haven't built your rhythm around your babies yet. And inadvertently, although he probably intended it, by putting those kids in that pram and walking into town and taking to walking every day and taking to putting my hands back in the dirt and growing food again, over a very short period of time, I completely rebuilt my patterns. I rebuilt my connection to my community. I started to recognize faces on the street. Eventually, I started saying yes to more familiar faces who said to come for a cup of tea or to join me at the community garden. And I actually completely rebuilt my patterns and I entrenched myself in the community. I changed my pace, I changed my rhythm and I grew food. And six or 12 months later, I rang him and said, I got the car fixed, no thanks to you. And he said, yeah, yeah, but what happened in between is that you landed, you rebuilt your place, you rebuilt your pace with your kids and you reconnected with the fact that growing food is your language. That is your love language and it is what gives you your reason to be. And so that is my single strongest way of finding hope is to grow food and to be in the dirt, to just have time out listening to the birds, time out with my back on the earth looking at the sky in day or night, time out and really breathe what's going on around me. And all of those things can be done no matter where you are. Your place, your pace, your rhythm, your rituals, all of those things can be built 
with very little time and very little money, you can still find a way to build them. And that gives me immense hope. And so too does the fact that there are lots of other people who think in just this way. They think beyond themselves. They think community first. They think that simple has a beauty that we can't even begin to imagine and we're just beginning to unlock and rediscover that. They think that ritual has value and that it's all of that is about rebuilding culture. And it will be slow, but it gives me hope. Yes, to everything you said. And I can hear some voices. There is a lot of darkness and anger and rage and hurt and suffering in the culture right now. Mm especially online, which is a vicious pace for the human mind and the human heart to go at. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would be saying, well, only if you're privileged can you Mm -hmm. think this way. While you were talking, I was thinking, I think it's a matter of life and death. This is not only a few people. Identifying those things you just said, like the pace of breath, what would it take just to get your breath back? Mm -hmm. What kind of life can you carve out where you could find your way back to a human pace and relationships and connection. And I think in Australia, we are privileged enough to be able to seek out the answers to those questions. Yes, I agree. And of course, it will come with sacrifice. It will come with sacrifice for the things that we expect to be given. There is a high expectation of what we're entitled to in this country. And I have had an incredible education. I do have a roof over my head that I own. I'm white-skinned and I've travelled and so I am incredibly privileged and it's not lost on me that I'm quick to say that hope comes from an ability to observe and to be still. And I realise that even the opportunity to observe and be still is hard for some people. I am really quick to acknowledge but I also think that if you can define what enough truly looks like and genuinely live that, I talk about this all the time, this say-do gap of the thing that we say, you know, there's beautiful ideas out there and there's concepts that we want to be part of and initiatives we want to be part of, but then what we actually do with that is join your local food co-op but then don't shop there or say that you support local but not send your kids to the local high school or say that you've got enough but continue to consume things that you truly don't need. There's an element of frugalism that has been frowned on for a really long time, but actually if you find beauty in a beautiful piece of fabric that you find in an op shop, that could actually be more rewarding than jumping online and buying something new. There's sort of an alternative, a simplistic... That sounds, I just want to pause on that because you talk about this concept in the book. You talk about elegant frugality. So I want you to expand on what that is. It's super radical. I know that this might sound like, oh, you know, that's just what we did in the 70s. We're getting back to op shopping. It's much deeper than that. Yeah, it really is because it's really easy to get lured back into the world that is flashing shiny new things at you all the time. So truly coming back to appreciating those really small, simple things is a really hard lesson in commitment to beliefs. And I don't do it. I'm the first to admit. Actually, my biggest problem is that when I'm in an op shop, which is about the only place I shop pretty regularly, I find all sorts of stuff I don't need. But because it's beautiful in its own right, I decide I need it. Charlie's forever saying, just because you think it's beautiful doesn't mean you have to own it, (laughs) even if it is only a dollar fifty. There's truth in that. But elegant frugalism comes back to being a bit disciplined and comes back to working out whether or not you need it or whether you can just appreciate that it's in the world. It's in the world and I don't need to own it. Someone else may, in fact, 
need it. I wrote down the two words, discipline and discernment. They're really hard. So lockdown five in Melbourne, for Mm. those of us in Melbourne, it sort of stripped my nervous system and it was like I couldn't handle the cognitive load of decision-making. Yeah. Yeah, And I'm like you, I'm a doer. If I'm Mm. doing, I feel less anxious. I like being in feedback loops that keep me returning to my best self. I just get myself in the way of goodness as often as possible and good people and good action and good thinking, restoration and regeneration. But this time it really was increasingly, I just don't want to leave my bed. Right, yeah. Well, it was hard being in winter too because that doesn't get out and do much. (laughs) I've got this beautiful book I'm reading at the moment called Wintering. Mm. Yeah, and I talk about that in this, that it's actually an opportunity to really embrace the bigger patterns of the world and those cyclical seasonal patterns and acknowledging that wintering is a time to turn inward and to reflect on the summer that has been and to gently ponder plans for the next season and to really nourish and deeply rest and really connect with the most important people. During the other times of the year, you have opportunities to be quite externalised and to be seeking ideas and influence from lots of people that are you're seeing on a day-to-day basis. But winter is really the chance to come back to base and really come back to your foundation, come back to your deep roots that are in that nurturing home space if you're lucky enough to have one of those. And I think really acknowledging that us as humans have evolved in seasonal environments It's very easy to go from an air-conditioned car to an air-conditioned house or an air-conditioned office and be fairly oblivious to what's actually going on outside and to build a rhythm across the annual year that reflects the thing that is one of the most influential things in our world, which is Mother Nature and our surroundings. We just have become a bit oblivious to that. I had a similar conversation about menstrual cycles with Lucy Mm. Peach. Yes, In the four weeks of a month's menstrual cycle, you actually go through summer, autumn, winter and spring. And we don't want to because the way that we were just raised in a time that was anti-nature in so many ways because it was summer all the time or it's spring all the time and output and we're doers. So how to do entering and how to recognise the seasonality and how to recreate an economic system that was honouring of seasonality again and allowed Mm. us to live into that really exquisite living planet we're on and start to mimic that. And I know it sounds esoteric, but it isn't because we're genuinely being forced with COVID and ecological collapse. We've got to reconsider all of this. We actually haven't been living like this for very long either. That's the other thing. Of all of the thousands of years that we've evolved, we've evolved in absolute harmony with the thing that is bigger than us. And we just haven't done that in the last few hundred years because we haven't had to. We've had cost and convenience presented to us in a way that has meant we haven't had to actually consider all of those things. But we actually do need to understand that as humans, we are not machines. It was Meg Ullman from Artists' Family. I interviewed her and she said quite profoundly, We didn't evolve to be machines and we didn't evolve alongside machines. And so to think that we can, one, operate at its pace or operate alongside the pace that it sets is completely farcical. We actually haven't got capacity to maintain what we do if we think we are machines. We need to go back to being human. 
And it was such a profound statement that it made me think, Jesus, of course, we whiz around the countryside in these vehicles. We jump onto the screens and have the ability to connect with people all over the world. We evolved in very small, relatively stable communities where our survival was dependent on understanding how our community operated, where we got our food from, what the seasons meant for us, where we had to migrate to. Our evolutionary path was very different to the one that we now live. It is so far removed from the one we now live. And until we reconnect with the fact that we are humans and not machines and not part of this churning system where we can actually slow and be part of the complex natural world, we may never actually get to a place where we can truly start to heal. I have so many questions. The looming question here, which I talk about a lot as well, and I feel like I'm ready to answer that question again, like go upstairs after this conversation and just if the only takeaway is answer what is enough, really answer that question. And then not only answer it, but acknowledge that living into that will be hard and that there will be massive great slips of hypocrisy and that's just true and you have to be accepting of that because you are only human. (laughs) But then how are you going to find others to take that path with you because you can't do it on your own? And then actually making those sacrifices. Sacrifices are hard because we are multi-generations into thinking we are entitled to the things we've worked hard for. But there are plenty who are working hard but don't have that opportunity in the same way. Catherine Ingram, who is one of my mentors, an amazing Buddhist scholar, researcher, journalist, teacher, she talks about the radical act of contentment. Yeah. Don't we want to be content? Yeah, I think we desperately do, but we're so surrounded by messages that tell us we're not because you're not content if you don't have this latest gadget and you surely can't be content if you haven't got access to these things and you're a have-not if you're not driving one of these vehicles. We are bombarded with thousands of messages on a daily basis and unless you actively exit that bombardment, which is really hard to do, really, really hard to do, there's this niggle. There is this endless narrative that tells you you aren't content there is more there is surely more stepping away from that is possibly the hardest thing people can do actually people do say that to me often how did you step away and just recently I have gone back to working for someone other than ourselves and it has been one of the most intimidating things I've done because it took a really long time to leap away from it all and to jump into the river and to let it pull me downstream and end up wherever I ended up And to be on my own doing that because there's not a lot of other people in the stream. Everyone's holding onto the bank for dear bloody life. And so letting go was a relief at the time, but it took a lot of courage to do. And then stepping back into the world where I'm working for others was a really, really big decision. And the only reason I was able to reconcile the idea in my mind was because it's on a project that I deeply believe in and I believe, and it's food-centric. It's regeneratively food-centric and the values alignment of the organisation is spot on and I can continue to, to do this future-setting work and this black barn farm work where I think there will be an opportunity for balance. I think finding your enough is always evolving. Yeah, because your enough is a hell of a lot. It's not saying live a small life. You don't live a small no. life. You live a yeah. huge life with yeah. so much contribution and showing up. If you answer your enough, how do you still show up? Well, actually, showing up for me is part of my enough. If I'm not showing up, then I don't actually feel like I'm contributing. My enough comes from 
that need to be participating actively. That's actually possibly one of the reasons I hit a wall of exhaustion was because that need to show up was just so deep and so intense that I feel like I'm bailing out or I'm being a cheapskate or I'm... Maybe what we're saying, because the two questions, what is success to you and how much is enough, are the two companion questions that can come out of this conversation. And maybe one of our listeners out there wants to do a really rad diagram on how you could ask these questions but include all the really important connection points, all the things to consider while you answer those two questions because they're correlative and there is a big mind map there of things you should be considering when you answer the question so that you don't become narrow in the answers because I feel like at the moment when I was talking about being under my doona, not wanting to get out of bed in lockdown. Actually, <laughs> it wasn't in lockdown. It was the two days after lockdown lifted. Yeah, right. Because again, you went through another change and you had to get your head around it. That's the challenge out there, everyone. One of you come up with a really beautiful, awesome way that we can visualise answering these core questions that will keep us returning to ourselves because maybe when you had burnout and for a lot of people out there who see contribution to the world and community and family as vital to their own feeling of aliveness in the best sense, but it has to be seasonal. You know, there has to be time for wintering and time for summering and all of the internal and the external dance that we do with our world and our inner lives. And I love that. I can see it, but I can't draw it. Actually, I talk in the book quite a lot about living local but thinking global. And I say that because only you truly understand the, the dynamic of your local environment and your local biome and your local politics and your local foods and your local seasons. And, you know, connecting with all of that is really important. But if you continue to only look inwards towards your local surrounds, you lose the opportunity to be learning. And we are fortunate in the modern world where technology is on our side. We now have the ability to access so much knowledge at a much broader global scale and bring those kernels of wisdom back into our local environment and find ways to adapt them and to integrate them. And it's permaculture principle from patterns to details. It's understanding that you have tight patterning instincts and needs within your household and community, but that if you actually bring the details from other places, you can actually enhance your own. Jade, I just love you. <laughs> How have I not been in dialogue with you? I mean, I have been in dialogue with you, right? This is the thing that we know. Oh, a bit more of this. Well, when you are in dialogue with the essential part of yourself, you are actually in dialogue at the same time with all the like-minded souls around mm -hmm. the world who are in dialogue with that part of themselves. And in this potent time, we find each other through technology, which is both an enabler and mm -hmm. a destabler. I have so many more questions and I think we have a lifetime more of conversation to be had, but thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on the Dumbo Feather podcast and thanks to Birkenstock Australia for partnering with us on this episode. You can shop and learn more about them over at birkenstock.com.au. If you like what you hear, please leave a review and consider subscribing to Dumbo Feather magazine, which is full of stories and wisdom for building a hopeful future. You can do that over at dumbofeather.com. Take care of yourself 
and reach out to your loved ones. Bye for now.